Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. We couldn't be better positioned. We're literally laying in my backyard in North London. It's a stonking evening. It must be 23 degrees. We're about to go into one of those England heat waves, three or four days on the spin between 32 and 35, perfectly timed for the Australia A versus Australia A <laughs> tour game that you're about to go to. I'm going to be at England and Ireland. And we thought, what better time than pull up a pew and talk about where we've been, what we're doing, where we're going, and and the state of the cricketing summer and where it finds us. Good evening, Jeff. Hello. There's so much going on. We are lounging back on the grass. It's very pleasant indeed. Uh, we, we've been planning for the live show that we've got coming up at Hampstead Cricket Club. I was there today. The 12th of August. I was there today. You can go to Final Word Cricket com our new website which is glorious and we've already gone on about that a fair bit but go there finalwarecricket.com and read about all the live show information that you'll need there's tickets on sale we're selling them for 20, 20 pounds which yeah. accounts for the fact that we're going to be ringing in a special guest for the evenings we need to pay the guests so therefore please uh, yep. please go and buy a ticket beforehand i went down to my old cricket club hampstead this afternoon and um and had a look about where we're going to set up it's a great space not too dissimilar to the space we had for the live show in melbourne in uh, january i think it was so jump on the website buy a it ticket it's going to be a lot of fun jim maxwell's also with us joining the final word jim of course has a long history with ashes cricket so no one better to have with us he first started listening to Asher series on his transistor radio as a kid i think the first one he told me about was 1964 before they had the advanced technology it was the the old style radios i can't remember what they're called now but crystal set the crystal set i think that's exactly right so and then in 1968 he's got a it kind of you can kind of document his childhood based on i think he started a cricket magazine in his schoolyard from the 1964 Ashes, listening to it through the radio at night. So it's fair to say that Jim's knowledge of Ashes cricket goes back about as far as anyone in our press box and can't wait to have him alongside other special guests who, who played in the contests over the years. Now on the show today, interesting one uh, lined up. We've got an interview coming up with Barney Douglas. He's the director of a new film called The Edge, recently released. It's Well, it's about cricket. If you're a partisan English supporter, you'll like the bit where England beat Australia in 2010-11. If you're a partisan Australian, you'll like the bit in 2013-14. <laughs> um, but but it, what he set out to do was was chart the course of that England team over their quest to become number one and then but to really look into what was the cost of that um, and and the, the personal effect on the people involved. And, and Barney was travelling with the team at the time for the, over the course of several years, so he's got a, a wealth of archival footage. He's got um, interviews with all of the key protagonists and, and it's a bloody brilliant piece of cinema. So we got him along and then Felix White, who's of the Tailenders podcast and, and the band The Maccabees, but he wrote the score for this film and he's a massive cricket nuff, so it was a perfect blend for him as well of the, the cricket and the musical side. So we had the, the two of them along for it. 
a conversation which we'll get to pretty shortly. Yeah, a ripper of a conversation too. I went to the press screening of this film the day before the World Cup started, I think it was, and I knew as soon as the film ended we needed to get Barney on to have a chat with us and it was just a happy coincidence that Felix, who's been a good friend of ours and a friend of the show, that we were able to get him along for the ride too. The score's brilliant. It adds so much to the pictures that Barney's been able to gather and some unreal interviews. I've had a chance to watch the film a couple of times now and uh, and the interview yeah matches that, doesn't it? We get the chance to really uh, go into great depth about um, the different th- thoughts of different players that he interviewed, which, you know, obviously when the, the film's going to air, you can't ask about motivations and whatever else. You're just getting the raw products. But he's very generous uh, with his interpretations of all of that. So, I'm gra- yeah, I'm really glad we got to do that because it's not your normal cricket film, as you say, Jeff. Not to say there's many cricket films to start with, <laughs> but when you think of a cricket documentary, perhaps, you, you, you're right. used to heaps of, you know, uh, crash, bash, wallop and, and all the rest yeah. of it. And, and, you know, if it were the, the documentary that Cricket Australia made last year or a couple of years ago, whatever it is, it's all about, you know, Aussie, 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 yeah. oi, 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 and all the and rest of it. And then I hit David Lloyd in the bollocks. Yeah, exactly. Or blimey, hit me right in the bollocks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas this does a completely different job and not from a partisan perspective I should add this isn't about England and Australia it's about the personalities of the protagonists who are involved in that really interesting England dressing room of yeah roughly 2009 through to about 2013-14. I think more broadly it's about being a human being trying to survive in the world of professional sport which is um something that it's an uncomfortable tension I don't know if the two of them are actually compatible and I think that's maybe something that we're starting to learn as we go along yeah there's been a consistent theme of our podcast chats in the last couple of months actually so it picks up off that nicely uh in terms of uh, what we're about to do in the next week I mentioned off the top that you're going to Southampton for Australia versus Australia it's not Australia <laughs> I, 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 it, it's the Graham Hick 11 and the Brad Haddon 11. 11 and yeah. it sounds like they had a rather eventful drafting process where the, the players controlled how they did it and so forth Justin Langer was talking mm. to the press down at Southampton today we're not there at the moment but I did have a listen to his press conference before a reasonable amount to take from it actually so there's going to be a potentially four spots up for grabs in the squad when you consider a squad of 16 or 17 that four still to be played for uh, in this uh, match. It, it does mean that it's relatively high stakes. He says that it's the best possible preparation as opposed to playing what he described as a Mickey Mouse game. I'm not sure whether county games are have always been Mickey Mouse, but I also appreciate that the last time they came to England in 2015, they pretty much played a Kent, not second 11, but certainly not their best team and oh, that was the are, case for us as well. They're definitely second bowling 11s or thirds. I mean, 2013 yeah. as well. They, you know, No county side bothers to roll out their good bowlers because no, that's right. they play too much anyway and, and you've, you, I think we were, we were up in North Ants, they had kids coming in from the, the minor county sides and so on. And it worked though. Richard Gleeson, yeah. who debuted that day, is now one of the, one of the most sought after pro- commodities in county cricket. But yes, he was brought down from Northumberland to make yeah. his debut wearing black trainers when he walked out to bat uh, with, for the first uh, time. I think with a captain who'd literally never seen him bowl, if yes, I remember rightly. Yes, he was like, what are you bowl, Gleeson? <laughs> right arm over, good stuff. So Here much show. That, so much show. We were commentating that game, and I, my recollection is that the scorecard that we were given by Northamptonshire spelt his name as Richard Glesson. So we yep. were calling him as Glesson for the entirety of the first day, and so we were told that no, actually it's Gleeson. Well, how are we meant to know? You didn't yep. know. You were yeah. you were the ones putting the, the scorecard together. Anyway, so um, that's what's going on down there. But yeah, like Matthew Wade sounds like he's right in the mixer. Talking about all rounders, he he referenced both Mitchell Marsh and Marnus Labuschagne, obviously. Labuschagne's made a, a truckload of runs over at Glamorgan, but he's actually discussing him as an all-round prospect with his leg spin. He's bowled quite a bit in second division through the summer. Um, he, he's talking about the influence of 
Steve Waugh and Ricky Ponting. I might come back to that in a second, actually. He's discussing the old golden rule about making a ton and keeping you in the side. That would mm. mean that Travis Head, Joe Burns and uh, Curtis, Curtis Patterson would all line up at Edge Baston. But he said that, well, Martin Love didn't in 2003. And, of course, Peter Hanscom got dropped from that one-day side not long after a century because Stephen Smith returned. So mm. it feels like there is a, a fair degree of volatility there You know positive way. I mean, even though it's not ideal to be landing your squad so late, this is a legacy of Pat Howard, of course, and there have been a lot of praise of Pat Howard this week that he thought ahead and realised that after a World Cup, this was the best possible way of nailing down your squad, and look, look it might be a masterstroke, it might be something we see a lot more of. Yeah, yeah, I suppose, we, you know, it'd be easy to criticise it after the event if it doesn't work. But We probably um, will. <laughs> but without the benefit of hindsight, I, I don't mind the idea, I think, yep. there, because there will be a lot of internal tension and so on. Um, Basically, if you're not getting a decent workout from the warm-up games, you know, if, if it's if it's 1963 or whatever, and, and you're getting a really strong Essex team who's all out to beat you because you know there's something riding on it, then great. But then you're playing good local players in local conditions who are bowling the sort of way that Test bowlers will. But if you're not getting that, then what's the point? Well, well that's right. The county sides. Well, they used to play all every every county side including mm. a minor county side they'd play the universities as well so a, an old fashioned tour of England up until 1997 including 97 I think they played 15 additional first class games on that tour 93 was the <laughs> last time they played every county so you can imagine now imagine you went through like it was in 1993 and you played every single county side around the country unbelievable uh, times but uh, often times they'd start the three day game the day after a test match it wasn't uncommon for them to jump on the motorway certainly in 89 that was the case um, that the day after a test finishing they'd be starting a, a three day game somewhere oh, around the shires but yeah so this is a a new concept not new to have australia right here um shadowing the, the main squad england did it two years ago in the in the last ashes steve down there. smith got in the squad in 2013 absolutely. from the australia race absolutely squad, made 100 uh, against ireland who are playing this week at they are. we're gonna get there Don't yeah, worry that about was that. a brilliant segue we, we're gonna get there well we, other things to sort of note though out of out of all this is that alex Kerry um feels like he's just about a lock for this second keeper spot so it could be very well the case that Payne, Wade and Carey are all in the 17 or or the 16 for that matter which probably wouldn't have said that three months ago mm. um, so that's pretty interesting Carey has used the World Cup well to push his claims there's been well, I guess the, the World Cup guys have had a bit of time off. So this is their first return to cricket after what will then be roughly a fortnight since the World Cup semi-final at Edgebaston. So I know that well, Pat Cummins has been overseas and I'm sure that's been the case for a lot of them getting away and just getting their head out of cricket completely on a four-and-a-half-month tour. I wish I could go to France for a few days and, and chill out, but some of them have taken that option. Um, Steve Waugh and Ricky Ponting, I, I note that Langer, this is quite good, uh, I think you'll like this, he said of... Steve Waugh's presence and Ricky Ponting's presence around the camp in the World Cup um, that he has, a, he has a, a something on his wall in his Perth office, Justin Langer that I never went to Harvard but I employ a lot of people who did and I did a quick bit of googling, that's an inspo quote from Elon Musk so <laughs> I'm glad to see that I mean, no further comment. Really on that. I'm just going to let that one stand. Oh you can, God! You can draw your own conclusions. <laughs> Anytime there's a scandal around Elon Musk, you can call it Elon Gate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, okay, that's grim. Did, did he say how many hats Steve Waugh was wearing this week? Steve yeah. Waugh wearing just the one hat? Is yeah. he wearing two hats? Or might have had the bacon sandwich. Hats. Who knows? Yeah. We, can, we can get that. Back. Is it the triple? Um, one other thing about this is going to be how they manage the the, the the man management when they let these guys go. They're literally going to be let go from Southampton if they're not playing on, that is, and sent home. So it could be quite a nasty 
mm. situation for some of these guys to be in to think that they could be on the cusp of staying for you know the most exciting adventure of their cricketing careers mm. or going back to the, the middle of winter in Australia depending on how they play this week there is it's, a lot on the line it's very sort of um, you know 1790s transportation isn't it you, you, you're yeah. down at Southampton then you're, you're on the dock at Hull you're, you're on the ship see you later <laughs> speaking yeah. of Elon Sorry, Musk he'll, he'll be no doubt um, <laughs> transporting people to Mars on that super spaceship he's building yeah. before the end of the decade or whatever is the case we can we pick who he sends because <laughs> yeah. I've, I've got some i've got some noms it's like the death car you can pick your death car to go over the cliff it's like the, who goes on the space x spaceship to mars i have got some nominations what else came out of that oh just that the relationship between tim payne and justin langer the coach was saying how strong it is between the two tim payne did a really interesting interview uh with cricket australia's website i think a couple of days ago now where he discussed how there was an arms race going on with the old ball and getting the old ball to talk, in other words, tampering the hell out of it, um, in that era before Newlands. And now he feels as though that arms race, if you like, has ended. So mm. to the extent to which we see reverse swing influence this series, although it's less of a, less of a thing usually with the Duke's ball. but Not in 05, it wasn't. True. That's true. Thirteenth over was it? That's it's true. Edge Baston that Flintoff was reversing. No, the no, ball. no, no, no. Well, yeah, they're, totally they're, legit. They're, Everything's fine. Nothing to see here. But they're, they're, it was, and, and also Tim made the point that he uh, he would have been here anyway in England for this Ashes series, selling bats. Had he not yeah. been, <laughs> had he not been. Well, for I interviewed him about the Ashes in 2015, a couple of years around this time last year actually, and just discussed with him when he was playing in the Home Counties League in 2015. When we were at Kent, someone asked someone a question at the presser don't recall who it was anymore who was in the Australian side but whatever happened to that Tim Payne fellow and they go oh I think he's in England somewhere yeah. and, and he was he was, he he was, was living was, with the club chairman he was at Bunbury Crew Club I think it was Bunbury something like that in um in Bunbury, anyway, wherever it was, in um, Hertfordshire or or, uh, or somewhere like that, and mm. now he's back leading the Test side after, you know, considering his his uh, professional career closed. So that, that's a pretty amazing tale, and and that's about it. Usman Khawaja's not going to play. They think he's pretty close, but they don't think he's quite ready yet to return with that hamstring injury that he acquired at the back end of the World Cup campaign, and. Yeah, really. I, I guess we're just. Like, I mean, I'm not going down. As I say, you're going to go, Jeff. But it could, I think if they put it on television, it would have done. I'm not going down. You're going down, <laughs> Jeff. Bloody hell! When, when we when we dramatically fall out and there's a scene on a dock somewhere. Yeah, you know, that's right. And that's you're right. about to hop on the ship for Panama. And you, you've set me up. <laughs> set me up for the fall. It was me all along. Um, do you? Uh, yeah, but I mean, you're going down there. Obviously, I reckon mm. had they put it on television, um, it would have. Would have done pretty well. Yeah. Well, they're, they're broadca- we're broadcasting the first day on BBC. No, sh- what, on television? Yeah. No, no, on um, on radio. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I'm not surprised it's on radio, but yeah. it had it been... I mean, obviously, the Island Test match starts after that, but yeah, there's enough interest to do the first day. Sure. Which is, you know... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, had, it, had they put a couple of cameras up, mm. maybe CA will, maybe they'll they erect a couple of temporary cameras and stream it back, but yeah, there's... There's ample interest in that. Probably more interest in what's going on at Lords, really, if I'm honest, which is <laughs> England's um, test match against Ireland, which is going to be an amazing occasion. I can't wait to be there. I was at Malahide in May last year for their first ever test, and now they're taking on England. And without getting into the details of the game itself, the the the, uh, the very fact that they've been invited to play a test mm. at Lords, with all the history between England cricket and Irish cricket, the fact that Owen Morgan was at Lords last week holding up the World Cup for Christ's yep. sake. There is a there is a rich history between these nations, and, and the MCC and the ECB have been very kind to Cricket Island over the years. So it's only appropriate they get a, turn, a chance to turn out. Mm, but more so, more recently. <laughs> I'm not sure if over the years, um, in the longer term, but. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, more administratively. The support they've given yeah. Cricket Island since they've you know, really made their mark since 2007. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and the county championship's been a bit of a finishing school for their players. So if it is a green top, 
Mm. and Timmy Murder gets a chance to bowl with a new ball where he dominates for Middlesex. That could be a lot of fun on morning one, but we'll see. Fingers crossed. Uh, where are we up to? Should we do some nerd pledge? We, yeah, why not? Let's do some nerd pledge before we break into the interview. Let's Hit do me. some nerd pledge. Why don't you explain it first? Nerd pledge is the game that we play with people on our Patreon page where uh, they can sign up, subscribe to the podcast, uh, and instead of giving a round dollar amount, they give a number that has something to do with cricket, and we have to work out what that number means. So we have full discretion to work out what it means because obviously it's not like they can sit here and tell us, so it's up to us. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's what we're going to do. We're going to quiz ourselves on some numbers. But f- before we do that, we're going to look at a couple of the people who don't do nerd pledge numbers. They just do normal numbers, and we have to decide who they are, what they, what they do, what they're about. Mm. First up is Jack Duncton. Thank you, Jack. Uh, Jack Duncton invented the slam dunk. Amazingly, oh, yeah. Who would have thought? There we go. The uh, the, the Duncton. It's the Duncton. Uh, yeah, downtown Duncton. That's what they used to call him um, when he played for the San Antonio Spurs back in in the late sixties. Uh, another one. I don't think that the Spurs were in San Antonio in the late sixties. That's fine. I, I don't know what those relocated. Clubs I don't think the slam dunk was invented in the late sixties either. But if you don't give us a nerd pledge, we just have to make up something about you. This is how it works. Uh, another one on the list, Adam Justin Douglas, uh, renowned horticulturalist and cousin of Barney Douglas, who we're talking to later today. That's right. Yeah, um, Alison. Stock from a family of inventors. They invented the stock cube, uh, the stock whip, the um, good the, stock, the, the bird that brings babies, the mm. stock. Um, yeah, all of those things. Made of good yeah, stock. Yeah, good stuff. Um, Chris Hutchison is another. Uh, Chris Hutchison. He's the um, great grandson of uh, Brownlow medalist Bill Hutchison. Believe it or not. Chris Hutchison. Well, it's a good. There's some good family lines here yeah, today. Yeah. Um, William Henderson, of course, um, closely related to Dustin Henderson, the uh, enterprising, annoying kid out of Stranger Things, <laughs> who um, where I'm up to in it is he's currently running around a, a Russian military base. You, you, you kept waking up late and taunted. I was wondering what was going on. You were just watching episode after episode of Stranger Things, weren't you? I have been. I it's it's my like non cricket thing. I'm like I'm going to watch one a day just to not think about cricket for yeah. a bit. So thank you, William Henderson. Thanks, Will. Thank you, D. Billington. Mysterious D. Billington. Once ate 44 potato cakes in the city. Really? Went for 50 but couldn't get there. Oh, uh, well, you know, falling short of a 50 mm. is something that that, uh, that most of us aware, are aware of at some point. Uh, Robert Holmes. Um, <laughs> well, there's, there's only one place we can go with that, isn't there? Sorry, Robert. Uh, sorry, uh, Johnny. God, you'd like to think that we were higher brow than that. No, but, we're you know, not. We're a not. strong connection with Mark Wahlberg. We'll just yes. we'll, we'll just leave it there. Robert Holmes, thank you very much for Robert Holmes your court. your contribution. And the last one, actually, a person I know, Rory Hart. Hello, Rory. Oh. Um, Rory Hart can actually strip a computer and then rebuild it again with his teeth. No hands really? involved. Incredible. I've seen it done. Wow. I've seen it done. I can't answer that. Very very generous pledge as well. So thanks, uh, Rory Hart. Thank you, Rory. for coming through. So Jack. Alison, William, Robert, D, Justin, Chris and Rory. They're our non-nerd pledge pledges for the Thank week. Thank you. On to the nerd pledge numbers. Well, a couple of corrections. First, Abhi Ramanathan, we talked a lot about the 137 a couple of weeks ago that Abhi put through. Um, we didn't necessarily guess that it was Gundava Vishwanath's uh, 137 against Australia, but that was a... No, I didn't have that. What, what did I have it as? I can't remember, to be honest. It was a couple of weeks ago. Okay. We've gone a long way back. We've done a lot of numbers since then. Okay. But, um, but, but that was one of them. The 232, which I thought we were red hot when we guessed Stan McCabe. Was I, that... I, was, I was certain it was Stan McCabe, and, uh, and I'm mortified that it's not. What is it? Amelia Kerr, uh, the oh. highest score in women's ODIs. Yes, Amelia Kerr. Well, which... um, I've got no complaints about that. I was walking through a Parisian shopping centre with Vidushna Hantaraja and Amy Lofthouse, two friends of the show, last year, and we were following it on our phones as she made her way to 232 and then took five for Sodol afterwards. Yep, against Ireland what last year. Highest um, ODI 
score in, in women's one-day cricket. Um, and I'm, I'm devastated to say that the 216, so for background, this whole time we've been do- doing Nerd Pledge, we keep getting 216s. I yep. keep saying it's Clary Grimmett's tally of test wickets. It is. It has never been, Well, it is, but <laughs> nobody who has sent us it has sent us Clary Grimmett's tally of test wickets. This time it was Byron Cooper Fogarty, and this time it's Steve Waugh's highest first-class score. <laughs> so someone just give me Clary Grimmett. God damn it. Well, that 216, that may have been when he and Mark Waugh batted for... You know, a gazillion years mm. in the Wacker in 1990. I'm not sure. I think it might be. Yeah, there's, a, there's a couple anything. of those big partnerships. Yep. Um, we've got a 248 from Sam Littlejohn is a new one. Um, and the 248... Eesh, look, I I had a look, but I'm... I'm um, 248. So, 248. Normally, I, would, I might, from time to time, just have a little think about these beforehand, but I... You're coming at me cold today, so 248, have you got any clues for me what well, you think it might be? Well, I thought Sam Littlejohn was probably a New Zealander, um, and so I thought it was Kane Williamson's higher score, but that's 242, mm. so it's close. Maybe he just got it wrong. Okay. But it's not. there's only one score, which is not really a good one, because it's Tendulkar versus Bangladesh, um, you know, one, one of the Bangladesh tons. Oh, right, yes, but one of the 16 mate. international tons he made against Bangladesh, right, okay. Um, and, and so the, Don't the, add us. The only option I could think of... What about of, an inning score, 248? Yeah. Feels like a one-day international... It does feel like a significant one. Or, um, or a fourth innings chase. But or a baggy green number. My, my best guess was Terry Jenner's baggy green. Oh, yes. Well, if, if Terry Jenner's baggy green is 248, then it is indeed Terry Jenner's baggy green. I'll never forget um, the way he was depicted in Shame on the Musical, by the way. It, feels, it sounds like he was a lot of fun to spend time with. <laughs> and we've actually talked about um, uh, Jenner on, uh, on the show this year when we were... With Ian Chappell. With Ian Chappell, of mm. course. And so, uh, yeah, the very best to Ian Chapel at the moment. I saw that he's been in hospital recently, and um, I, I, we, of course, hope that he makes a very speedy recovery. Yeah, he's um, gave us a wonderful interview on the show, and the very best wishes going out to Chapelli. Um, hope you feel better soon. Uh, Patrick Hargraves edited his, I can't remember what his previous number was, but he's now a 249. Um, now I had a I had a good search around for a, for two forty nine related you know memorabilia. Sometimes I sometimes I have an idea, but sometimes this one I had nothing, and I was okay. like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go and search some stuff up. Here's what I found, Adam. The Channel Two Group Corporation banned two hundred and forty nine companies preemptively with a Supreme Court injunction from um, pirating their World Cup radio coverage. Well, here's ahead the of thing. The here's the thing about that. As I tiptoe carefully through this topic, they may have been trying to sue two hundred and forty nine people, but they would have only been able to have sued them for half the games because they didn't broadcast half the games. I should know because I was part of the broadcast team. <laughs> so, um, hmm. Anyway, well, it was preemptive. So that so they they identified websites that they thought were like. To breach their Were we copyright. one of them, I wonder? Um, maybe. <laughs> Was White Line Wireless maybe, one of them? Maybe, maybe. Um, it could well have been. So who knows? But they, they got a Supreme Court injunction. I think these were all Indian companies because they oh, fell right. under the jurisdiction of the, yep. the, the Supreme Court. Um, so they put court injunctions on 249 companies. <laughs> That'll do. And that was the best cricket-related number That'll I could do. find. Little, 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 uh, the, little fit. The other option is that 249 is what Afghanistan made when beating Sri Lanka in the Asia Cup last year. That's nice. That's nice. So, and, and if it's a baggy, if Terry Jennings was 248, I wonder who's 249 was. Mm. Have you had a look at that? No, I haven't. You didn't dig that out. That's okay. We can we can survive without it. I That's think good enough. Channel 2, getting a reference on the final word again <laughs> is good enough for me. Patrick Hargraves, if we're wrong, let us know, of Please. course. Uh, or if anyone has better guesses, let us know. Robbie McIntyre has come in with 209. And this... Uh, hmm. This it's th- a number that I feel. I can feel it. I yep. just, uh, uh, as as could I. It was in my waters. I'm gonna ha- yeah, I can feel 209. I'm going to need to... 
I'm going to give you a bit of context. Yeah, help me out. Just give me it's, one or th- give me one or two things, and I'll Ted Hastings it. It's imp- It's an important number in the career of an Australian player. It could be the wickets tally of an Australian player. It's not the wickets tally of an Australian player. Well, it could be. be. It could be Mur- Murph Hughes took about 200 and 208, I think, oh, wasn't he? Two, yeah, okay, two. Or was that Jeff Thompson? Jeff Thompson, I reckon, took two, 202 or something, just over 200. But it's not 209, is it? What else? Give me some more context. I th- I think what it is, yeah, I mm. think it's an innings. I think all of these are okay. batting batting scores okay. today. Okay. And I think it's an innings that was very significant in the career of a very significant Australian player. A um, significant innings in the relatively in the recently. Of a significant not, Australian not player. recent. Um, recent. Um, it did. Okay, so it's it's an innings that was made at a very important time in a career. So put it not that Michael way. Clark. Uh, an innings played by a significant Australian around that time. At a it had something to do time. with Michael Clark. A significant Australian cricketer at a significant... So someone who's made a double hundred for Australia who crosses over with Michael Clark. I'm thinking of people like Michael Hussey. I'm thinking of Simon Kadich. I'm thinking of people like Matthew Hayden. I'm thinking of people like... Give me a little bit more of a clue, Jeff, because you did play for about 12 years for Australia. <laughs> give me a, the narrow of the era down, shall uh, we? Well, there's, there's a transition period. Christ, there's a transition period. So one captain to another. Ricky Ponting's hundred against the Pakistan... Uh, against... Um, not Pakistanis, against the Indians at... At, against the Pakistanis at Hobart. That's the one. Boom. When, <laughs> when, when, end. when, uh, when Ponting had not made... Got uh, dropped at fine leg first ball, didn't he? He got dropped on naught by... Muhammad Amir. Muhammad Amir. I was watching it at an airport lounge in Johannesburg or something. I remember that. Mm, nothing yeah. sus about that. Muhammad Amir grasped him on naught in 209. <laughs> he hadn't made 100 in about two years, I think, at that point. Yeah, um, yeah. It, was his, was it, was his, it may have been his 39th 100, and then he took a long time yeah. to move from then 39 to 40. Because then was 40 was a big deal when he made that um, against, against India. India, and then 41, the one after that. Yep, That's right. The two yeah. in a row against India, the double in, at Adelaide. Yep. Oh, I'm um, good. I'm glad Ricky Ponting gets a Guernsey there. So, nice. so it was 209 was sort of what, what got, the peop, got the people off his back and kept him in the team for a bit longer. Uh, Scott Tutton has come in with 250. So thanks to Rob, Robbie McIntyre for the last one. Scott Tutton, 250. This is one that I knew off the top. Uh, it's very relevant to someone we were just talking about today. Do it. Justin Langer. Oh, 250, MCG. Have Boxing you? Day Test, day 203, of course. So I remember when he brought up the 100, It was he did it with a six into, yep. the, into the England support. So the Barmy Army that year, due to the redevelopment of the G, there was no Ponsford stand that year. Uh, and I think that's where the gap was that year, the Ponsford stand. And he, so the Barmy Army... Uh, had had all been um, concentrated in you know, the AFL members, I suppose you would say, and he plonked it straight in there and he gave it big. That was the same test when they were giving him all sorts of grief mm. uh, about it. I think he was, I think he was defending Brettley's action when they were no balling Brettley and as 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 the Barmy Army did in that era, mm. and uh, they they really hopped into him after <laughs> completing that double hundred two fifty. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I know that sometimes on Nerd Pledge you might say we're a bit too Australia-centric, but I'm pretty confident in the lead-up to an Ashes with Justin Langer being the current Australian coach. No, no, I'm pretty comfortable. That Who too. was that from, sorry? Uh, Scott Tutton. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. Ever so kind. Next on our list, Kartiki Srivastava has sent in 222. 222. Now, well, this, we had 2.22 to start this whole thing off. This is where Nerd Pledge began. This was, is where it began. This is when the first... The first, non, the first, the inventor of Nerd Pledge, yeah. Philip Meng, who, Philip who Meng. just hopped into our feed one day and said, no, I'm not going to do $2, I'm going to do $2.22, um, which was a Richie Benno joke. But I think there might be more to this number. It might, I think okay. in this case, it might not be a Richie Benno joke. I reckon, 
and and I'm very glad about this. I reckon Gundapa Vishwanath might have got his second mention on the final word today because really? he made 222 against England in Surely 1982. Not. That's well, I mean, it, uh, that would be wonderful to back that up. Is that what you really think it is? I I think it is because there aren't a lot of there. There is one other 222 that it could be, and it's a very good 222. <laughs> And um, and uh, I'm going to challenge you to think of what it is. It's a it's a okay. It's 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 one of the more um, exciting innings in the history of Test cricket. Uh, is it a say wag? Not is it close. It's not, but it's like that. Is it a gale? It's not, but it's like that. Too. It's not a gale. It's not a say wag. Is it a Test innings? Is it the Gilchrist? It was not long after a Gilchrist. Oh, is it Nathan Astle? It is Nathan. Oh, Astle. that is so good. I'm so glad it's Nathan Astle. The the fastest test double century. Yes, which he made a week after or a week before. No, about six months after. Six months after, yeah, right. I think. Um, it was a little while after, but it wasn't okay. long after. It yeah, was a yeah. few months later because Gilchrist had, had blitzed that record and then Astle went, you know what, I'll do it in... I think Gilchrist was 208 balls or something and Astle went, no, nah, I'll do it in 140 or I whatever I love that was. Nathan Astle gets a mention on the show. I, I was looking at him the other day in terms of his proliferation of low scores in World Cups, but he was a fine player and I'm... I'm Thrilled that he, he's in there. Not a big hitter, but just one day he just went, you know what? I'm going to go absolutely nuts. And uh, let's have the last one for today. This this is an edit. Our, our friend of the show, Jeremy Henderson, he's literally put in his, his two cents. He's gone from $2 to $202. Um, and, and 202 has, has a, a rich and illustrious history. Now, okay. I, I think he gave me some sort of hint on Twitter maybe that it might be something to do with Surrey and it might be a bit obscure. Now, I haven't gone and dug through a bunch of first-class Surrey stats. I have, though, found that Len Hutton of Surrey made 202 at the Oval against the West Indies. So okay. I think that's a pretty good bet. Okay. Well, it's not Ali Brown's 268, which no. is... No. Um, very Surrey. Which is very Surrey and very recent. Mm. Um, 202. I, I, There's been others. There are some other good ones, though. Do you want me to... Yeah, to, give me a list. This, the, Pick one. It's, it's, it's I'm pre- now laying back on the grass, by the way. It's a pretty nice <laughs> list. Um, Lara made 202 in Joburg. Joburg. Oh, might have been. What did he make at Jamaica against Australia? Must have been just over 200 as well. Anyway, that's fine. Two, two, uh, what did he make? 203? Anyway. Something like, yeah. Yep. Stephen Fleming uh, made one in Chittagong. Muhammad Yusuf made 202 at Lords. Wasn't oh, yeah. Jaffa made one against Pakistan in Kolkata. Uh, but here's a relevant thing to today in the conversation with Barney Douglas. 202, Kevin Peterson versus India at Lords, um, which was part of that era in yeah. 2011. Yeah. When, when they the went to the top of the world. I think that was that, that corresponds with uh, that era. So oh, that's um, nice. Brendan McCullum made a fast 202, 188 balls in Sharjah. Well, KP played for Surrey. Yeah. Remember KP made that very brief return to first-class cricket when he was told uh, in yeah. 2015 that he'd have to bash the door down via first-class runs, runs, and then he made a triple hundred against Leicestershire. He made 350. 350, wasn't it? Out. Yeah, and then the, the, the runs were not sufficient. They were <laughs> they not enough. Be, the, rater, the rater said the runs would not be enough. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that could be a Surrey connection. Um, McCullum's 202 in that weird test match which came just after Phil Hughes had died and the New Zealanders and the oh, Pakistanis yeah. were in the UAE and amazing and, and sort of pulled out for a day and, and didn't didn't want to complete the test match but eventually did. 
McCullum made That's a fine innings there. at McCullum innings. I remember watching that on television at the time. Chesh Pajara made 202 in Ranchi. Ranchi I was Relaxo. there. You I was commentating there. it. You were. Rancho Relaxo. You can't spell Relaxo without Relax. And Jason Holden made 202 against England oh, in Bridgetown only earlier this year. Yeah, there you So go. that's a pretty, it's a pretty eventful list of 202s. But in terms of Surrey, as you say, it's probably Hutton and it might be KP. And it might be something more, you know, deeper into the Surrey weeds, but um, Jez will, you know, give us a hint. <laughs> give me Messi Jez will give us a hint. He will. That I am sure He of. will throw his two cents in as he has done. I think that's enough nerd pledge for this week. If you want to get involved, of course, you can go to patron.com slash the final word. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And you can sign up to support the pod and it means that we can get a few bucks in the tin and keep things going. And before we throw to the interview, a reminder again, finalwordcricket.com. That's where you can go to book a ticket to our live show on the 12th of August at Hampstead Cricket Club with Jim Maxwell and TBC special guest. But I, I've got a couple of irons in the fire and I'm pretty sure it's going to be a good one. So snap that up uh, before they sell out. I know it's um, also clashing with one of the great cricketer shows. But, you know, they've got other shows. They have got other shows, many, many other shows. They do have other shows. To be fair, we did use that night because they had a show the subsequent night and then they booked a second show on the same <laughs> night as us. So They go who, well. Who's cutting whose lunch? Hmm? <laughs> who's cutting whose lunch? Hmm? Sam? Ian? Dave? Hmm? Uh, I'm, I'm relaxed. I think that there's enough love Very to go relaxed. around in terms of Australian podcast live shows. But uh, if you want to come to ours, it is the 12th of August. <laughs> the, imagine like having turf battles in the Australian independent cricket-related podcast well, we, we, in London we, turf. We, we, did, we did have someone uh, come, up to, come up to me the other night in, in the pub at Taunton and said that um, he was devastated to learn. Uh, this is uh, a friend of ours off Twitter, Thilo, who said that he'd already Tylo, I believe, is Tylo. the pronunciation. Yeah. I was always I've, I've, been, I've been corrected on, um, on Twitter. Oh, my apologies. Well, he came up to me... In Taunton and told me that um, he, he'd already sorted himself out for the great cricketer show on the 12th. So we're not seeing him then, but you know, there'll be other shows. There'll be other shows. Finalwordcricket.com. Thanks for all those who've jumped on Patreon. It's ever so kind. Now let's go and take a quick breather for AV Jennings and then launch into our interview with Barney Douglas and Felix White. Jeff, the home and the neighbourhood that you grow up in helps shape the person that you become. I can actually contend that this is true because I'm still afraid of bees and um, really don't like the smell of plasticine. <laughs> right, so the theory then goes that buying your own home can make you feel different. I suppose it would, partly because you owe somebody a shitload of money. But, um, you, I mean, you've done this recently. Is that is that the case? Do you feel different? I, I do feel different, actually. It's it's a, I feel like a proper grown-up after all these years. It's only taken me 34 and a half years to feel like I'm a contributing member to society, and, and that I am. So, so good O for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. It's really important to A.V. Jennings that when you buy your land or home that you feel like you belong. They don't just divide land into blocks. They design residential communities so that you can connect with others. Things like walking tracks, cycling paths, playgrounds and open spaces. And that sounds pretty good to me. Well, it's particularly important so that in future years when they do some lunchtime profile on a cricketer about where they started out, they can say, from humble beginnings or on the open spaces of wherever <laughs> it is, he used to play with a tennis ball and that's why he's so strong through the offside today. Even now, like a couple of years ago, I went to look, I went to seek out the laneway where Neil Harvey and his brothers grew up playing cricket, that cobblestone street in yep. Fitzroy. I can't remember what it was now, but I remember reading about it in Steve Kinane's book about backyard cricket and how it formed the, the careers of so many Australians that went on to play. And, uh, and and it still looks just as it did in the 1930s or whatever it was when Neil Harvey was growing up. So I can I can agree with that as well. Yeah, it probably does. But the point yeah. here is, the point here is, yeah, go, on. go to avjennings.com.au and discover some great places to live.
This is The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. And we're absolutely thrilled today to have a bit of a different episode to normal. We're not going to talk about cricket of 2019 today. We're going to talk about an era from roughly a decade ago where England went from number nine in the world to number one in the space of a couple of years. It's a marvellous story, brilliantly told by Barney Douglas, who has released a film last week called The Edge, which we've had the privilege of seeing a couple of times over the last couple of weeks. Welcome, Barney. Before we go anywhere, we've got Felix White, friend of the show, making his debut on The Final Word, weirdly. I would have thought he'd been on before. G'day, Felix, by the way. Hello, mate. How you doing? <laughs> Barney, um, what were you doing in these years which gave you such remarkable access to be able to tell the story? Well, it's a good question. Probably a lot of drinking. Uh, I, was on the, I was on tour with the England team, basically, and I was doing like the video production stuff. But it was the early days. It's not the professional mm. kind of world that it is now. It was a bit more like haphazard. Um, so I was kind of running around after them with a dodgy video camera. That sounds pretty dodgy. Um, and um, yeah, the and Roland just, Fishman yeah. film. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and so kind of capturing bits and pieces of like behind the scenes stuff and all that kind of thing. So yeah. And then what? When did you sort of realise that? What, at what point through the process did you think, hang on a second, this isn't just a story for now. This is a a story that I want to tell in a much longer form later on. I wish I'd thought that at the time. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't. Otherwise, I'd have kept a lot more footage. But um, I kind of... Tell you what, actually, being in it... And I don't know if you find this in cricket, but you take it for granted. Like, you sort of think, oh, no one else is really interested in this. I'm just yeah. doing my little thing in it, and that's fine. So, to answer your question, I wish I'd had a bit more vision at the time. Um, but now, looking back, I was I did think, OK, well, I've still got some good archive... I still think I'd like to redress the balance of the story of that team. And, you know, obviously with the World Cup and an Ashes coming up this summer, felt like a good time. Before we get into the nitty-gritty, I'll explain why Felix is here as well. Felix, you've done the score to the film, which when you've got so much work, so much film to work through, um, just, as a, just to start this conversation, how brilliant as a fan was it going back through this archival tape and, and being able to put a soundtrack to it? Yeah, I couldn't believe my luck, man, to be honest. We've sent all these clips of these players that I had emotional investment with but from afar do you know what I mean so you're kind of going through the process when you sent this of like re-getting to know all these cricketers um, so obviously having worked in cricket and done cricket things for the last few years I couldn't believe that I've been asked to actually score this entire film it was just the most perfect job ever I loved it it gives a new meaning to being a cricket scorer, though. <laughs> <laughs> that is the first yeah. person that's done that joke. That's unbelievable. It, it's so in Jeff's wheelhouse that, I mean, if anyone's going to make that gag, it's going to be him. I could see it coming from, from a long way. It was like a Zeppelin coming into land. <laughs> I guess the first scene of the film is quite evocative with Jimmy Anderson running down the beach. So... To put it in perspective for those who haven't seen it yet, it's very Baywatch. It is a little bit. It is a little See, bit. I was Baywatch. going for Lawrence Arabia, but I'll, I'll take Baywatch. Yeah, or, or Chariots of Fire, for that matter. Yeah. There's uh, a natural overlap between the two, though. You know. Well, there is a cricket Chariots of Fire link. Uh, yeah. that Derek Pringle, of course, uh, features. In That's Chariots right. Of, yeah, Chariots of Fire when he's Cambridge really? days. But uh, Peter had, Felix is utterly astonished. True story. There's a, there's a yeah. shot of Derek in his. It's his Cambridge cricket kit, isn't it? Where he is standing there in an early scene when, I don't know what, what I can't remember what the scene's about, but he, you, you see Derek in all his glory, all six foot five of him as a slender young man as a student. He wasn't wearing his 92 uh, World Cup no, final kit. No, no. <laughs> no, but he's, pro- he's on IMDb, I think. He tells yeah. everyone about it. <laughs> yeah, rightly so. But you, you chose to start with a series of pictures which you've taken now. So um, how easy was it to talk to these 
big personalities, giant personalities in the game and say, I want to go warts and all with you blokes. I want to interview you for presumably hours and hours and hours after the fact and get these pictures of them being often quite vulnerable. Well, I actually didn't have... It felt like hours and hours, but I only had a couple of hours with each of them in terms of the actual interview process. So I had to be pretty clear on kind of what I wanted. Um, I knew the guys from that time, so I think most of them knew I was a decent bloke and wasn't going to stitch them up. I think that was the first thing that was quite important. Um, And also, I think they're all at a stage of life where they're kind of either finished or at the end and they're sort of stepping into a new part of their life and they're just kind of ready to look mm. back a bit I think it, it um, could only have happened now after the like fact the right couldn't time. it yeah. Be- because yeah. Oh, yeah. it seems like speaking to players during their careers that even if they want to be honest at the time they don't even necessarily know what's happening with themselves as long if they don't have that perspective to be able to look back I totally agree I think yeah and I think a few of them had started to look back now particularly like maybe comparing themselves to the current team and thinking Wow, like we were, we were intense. Like we were an intense unit, and um, so I think it was the right time, first and foremost. But it wasn't. It's only now that I'm starting to think actually, that's quite an achievement to get all those people back together in the yeah. same <laughs> in the same instance. Whereas at the time, I was just kind of it's a bit like dominoes. You get Straussy, and then you get Flower, and then you know they all fall into line. <laughs> uh, the era really does start when they're at their lowest ebb in 2009, the Caribbean, those news reports are quite a good device you use using the newsreader explaining how England had been skittled for 51 and so forth mm. in Jamaica. Very uh, good um, film device. Was that like um, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet where he uses the newsreader at the <laughs> yeah, start right. to do the, the opening couplets? Was, <laughs> yeah, was that your inspiration? I think basically just none of the players said the right facts so I had to get someone in to... to, to <laughs> they wouldn't admit what they got bowled yeah, out exactly. for. exactly. So I had to get someone in to fill in the gaps, basically. That, that question, how much will you give to be your best? I mean, is that your recollection of the era that in 09, when this all started off, when they were near enough to the bottom of the world, that there were a lot of talented cricketers, but at that stage they'd yet to make that full commitment? Is that Was that your interpretation at the time? Yeah, well, they're a bit of a disparate bunch. And I think, like, st- structure and actually a target and coming together at the right time in their lives as well, kind of mid-early 20s when they're ambitious. But they needed somebody to come in and give them that actual direction essentially because England cricket certainly then it was pretty strange you kind of lurched from one tour to the next and it some of it could be branded as meaningless sometimes so I think getting Mr Flower in that really that made a difference and a, probably a weird time as a fan as well Felix thinking about it now the 05 Ashes is this moment of euphoria first time beating Australia in an Ashes series for well what was it then it was it was it's 1986 700 87 years. 700 years 700 years <laughs> Jeff and my entire youth were defined by watching England get pounded in the Ashes but, but four years on before that Ashes series of 09 that is it's as though the whole thing had gone off a cliff and in the film Bob Willis and, and, and Ian Botham have got the you know the chainsaw out um, at English cricket I mean it, 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 we, we reflect now on that era and we I think now we think of 05 and then top of the world, like it's on a on a linear rise up the hill, so to speak, but it wasn't, was it? And it would have been hard to watch. I think the interesting thing about that, though, is that as a cricket fan, you might attest this, that's where all the good stuff is, that kind of commitment to a doomed cause, do you know what I mean? That's where all the juice is, really. Like, it's not in the winning. So, like, from afar, that's what, what I found fascinating from all these revelations was the fact that, I'd felt connected to that side then, that kind of ragtag idea of them. And actually, the interesting thing is after they'd um, beaten Australia in Australia, that idea of sort of joyless winning, but you could kind of even feel it from that far away, the sort of disconnect of, of the joy gone, because as England fans, and even in the media, there's, there started to be a bit of... Uh, 
disconnect between them and people used to comment on the way that they yeah sure we won but it wasn't really that fun was it and that it's interesting that you could sense it from all that distance away do you know what I mean so I think that's the that's the really interesting part of the narrative arc is that even when they were winning and you could feel that it wasn't right they were all feeling unsettled in their personal lives Right, like if you set yourself, if your bare minimum target is to win, then how do you take satisfaction in doing something that is, is routine that you think you should have done? Exactly, and that's exactly what's at the, the root of the film, actually. Like, who are we and what is the point if you're not winning? And on the way, and on the way up, Barney, I mean, the way, the, the, the way you use Andy Flower, not only his comments, but the people talking about Andy, I mean, like the, 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 the uh, Tim Breslin, he just came and punched me, so I, so I fucking punched him back. You know, they, they, it's, it's pretty it's, amazing. It's the a look preposterous on... exchange, but it obviously happens. <laughs> it makes so much sense, though, doesn't it? <laughs> the look on Tim Breslin's face, though, where he's like, he just, he just, he just punched me in the chest, so I just punched him in his chest, and he looked at me and said, "Yeah, I like you. I like you. Like you. <laughs> yes, it's a." You can imagine. You can absolutely imagine it. Well, Flowers like got some absolute like the best lines. Like you know, Swanee saying, "You know, right, we'll be at the airport at nine a.m." Like it's just brilliant. And like I have so much respect for Andy. Like a to commit to doing the film, to kind of be sent up a bit in the first half, mm. but then also to kind of be honest and you know reflective and emotional and admit failings in some areas but also you know they wouldn't have got to number one without him so for me he's one of the most interesting and I think comes out the film actually really really well for me yeah that's a really interesting point as well because when we'd spoke about the film before when I knew I was doing the music and we were going back and forth like I had in my head that I was going to have to um, send up a lot of the characters because they're sports people and you don't always know exactly what they're going to say or, or you know how much depth there's going to be in it so I thought you know like when Andrew Strauss walked in it was going to be like chamber music like or whatever you know like all that kind of thing to be funny but when you actually heard what they'd said they'd all done themselves so much justice and they'd done such serious reflection on their careers that it felt like it was a totally different film than one I was anticipating. Was there a sense, Felix, that England fans could... Like, Flower had to be an outsider to be taken as seriously as he was, that he he couldn't have had that sort of buy-in if he were English? I think that's a really fair point, actually, that he'd come from outside. And obviously, um, the film without... Are we going to spoil the film too much by saying this? But obviously, his his Zimbabwean background, where he'd sort of been drilled into that sort of authoritarian role, that that scared the shit out of (laughs) the entire um, England squad, that couldn't have come from an Englishman. I mean, that's not Peter Moore's, is it, you know? No, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that he's from Zimbabwe. Yeah. <laughs> all these people going, oh, bloody yeah. hell. I hadn't read his quick info page yet. Yeah, so, I, I, I'm reticent to read out too many of the lines for that exact reason because some of them are absolute caucus. But what I, what, I will, what I did note down is when he says the meeting they had in 09 to buy in. The proper sort of the meeting they all say was the, the yeah. moment in time. The mafia it, bit it, where, where it, you it become went, a made guy. Yeah, yeah, it went well. It was, or shot in the head, one or the other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it went well. It was distinctly uncomfortable and he smiles. Like it's, you know, <laughs> he knows that as well. I, had, I interviewed Andy for a podcast, I don't know, a couple of months ago about the 1999 Cricket World Cup. Yeah. He was quite, and he was quite emotional, like hearing him talk about his love for Zimbabwe and what a patriot he is and the fact that he literally put his life at risk. So I find that contrast between how vulnerable he was when we spoke to him and how with in your project he's willing to show his teeth, like really show how hard and what a, what a you know, I want to pick the right word here, not a dictator because that's not fair, but how hard edge he was and how he felt that was the only way that ragtab group that Felix talked about could have possibly gone on that journey yeah completely and I think that's what and he does it with that glint and that little smile and I think that's what makes him such a rounded 
character in it. And and you're completely right. I think Andy, and I think it sit, rests um, uncomfortably with him as well. It's like he was represented, I think, in the media around that time as very one-dimensional. Mm-hmm. Like he is this, you know, master and yeah. that's it. And I think that's never quite... I think he's always felt a little, that's been unjust, really. Um, and I hope, certainly in the film, you get to see all these these different facets to him. Um, and, uh, yeah, and he does have a good sense of humour as well, like, and it comes through. I mean, he enjoys the pain sometimes. I, I was really moved by Andy in this film because I think for a, for a man that has been so stubborn and so competitive to reflect but, and be so responsible for all these people's lives, to reflect on it and say, yeah, I did make a few mistakes and I might do it different again I think that takes such like emotional courage to do that you wouldn't find in many people of his generation mm. so I actually think it, he comes on with so much credit from this film personally yeah I totally agree and also like I always find it interesting is that the, the people in the film that look at what they put in the environment that they all created not one person created they all create this environment and what interests me is who goes okay this is what I put into that environment myself and this is what I would have done differently and these are the positive things that other people did and so on and so forth rather than just say oh it's everyone else's fault yeah yeah that's right I thought it was interesting that they a lot of the people involved kind of come to a conclusion that you can have these great achievements but it's it doesn't necessarily mean that it's all worthwhile that it might there might have been the cost of it might not actually be worth achieving those things i thought that's that was a really interesting takeaway in that we very rarely get that admission from people in these kind of high achieving environments it's it's that once you've got that success all is vindicated well, yeah and that, i think that's the vulnerability that like felix was talking about but also it's interesting about the current team they've just won the world cup they seem to have done it in a a way where they've really enjoyed achieved that achievement and the process and the environment around them and and i think they owen morgan was kind of involved in this side so i think Mm. he would have definitely taken lessons Mm. from that what's interesting is what's next like how do they can keep that kind of feeling because i think england did have in the era that we're talking about up to the point that they won down under there was a lot of fun i mean there was a Mm. lot of funny times there was a lot of enjoyment um the balance shifted once yeah. they kind of achieved their goal. So that, to me, is the kind of where you, where you're talking about there. Kind of that's what's going to be quite interesting. Mm. A, a cricketer who was perhaps on 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 the wrong side of it in many respects, in that he was more there before the 09, 010, 11, but still had a role to play. Is the way you document the Monty Panister Monty Panister story rather, and you use the Cardiff experience to to spell it out and I guess that, that unguarded moment when he's cleaning his glasses and so forth. Do you think someone like Monty has been a net beneficiary of being an international cricketer or do you think it's taken a massive toll on him? Because I don't know if I, don't know, if I know the answer to that. Observing him uh, from, from a media perspective 10 years on, he, he still seems to be perhaps finding his way. Yeah, I think... I think there are, at the end of the day, there's fragile people or, or people with different dispositions in any walk of life, essentially. And I think Monty... Definitely, it's actually quite a fragile character in many ways. And I think when you're flung into the spotlight of the intensity of international sport at the very top, particularly in an environment that was super competitive and wanted to be the best, and also with the responsibility of actually kind of representing like his religion as well in an era where it was very white-dominated, that's a lot of pressure. And then when you throw on top of that, you're kind of perceived, as we start to sort of understand, that kind of humour element of Monty 
actually hurt him. A satirised figure. Because it's not really humour if people are taking the piss out of you all the time. Precisely, and that hurt. And and it's the first time I'd ever sort of hear him talk about that. And I also felt guilty myself because I think everybody was like, it's Monty, it's fun. And I I think... um, I think that comes across. So I think he had a lot of pressure on him. Somebody like Tim Bresnan, for example, who's a very different, very grounded individual, seems to come through it mm. other than a few injuries, pretty <laughs> unscathed. So yeah. I think I think you do, you know, another, the kind of person you are affects you, doesn't it? I think another interesting one is Steve Finn. <laughs> oh, this, this idea yeah. of a fast bowler who's actually really sensitive and shows it on the surface and where his place actually lay in that, in that kind mm. of archaic side where it wasn't really allowed to be that you have that more these days fast bowlers are allowed to show their feelings even if they're not necessarily aggressive ones but there's a, there was a few things when we were doing the edits when um, that we cut out eventually but or you cut out but uh, no I didn't or, or no, we, did, we did, did. But, um, <laughs> when they go to their training camp in Bavaria heart, almost heartbreakingly sweet uh, Steve Finn says that he bought with him a pack of Haribo which they confiscated <laughs> and he was gutted about it and it's just know, really feel- like Felix never forgave me for removing. No, I mean I love that, and I just like I, I thought he's kind of like focus point for me in the whole <laughs> film because he um, he here was a guy that was obviously a bit vulnerable and trying mm. and was being t- told to bowl fast and be aggressive, and he could, he didn't quite fit into the jigsaw, and thus he was. You know, like, like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, drop, I one of the most on, emotional drops cuts. on Christmas Day. Basically. Yeah, all that 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 yeah. bit when he goes and locks himself in the toilet on Christmas yeah. Day. I mean, there's a lot of deeply. Emo- I mean, when I went and saw this movie, Barney, not for the World Cup <laughs> you, started. Did you struggle afterwards? I thought you? I thought when seeing this movie, I was going to watch a movie about cricket, and it sort of is, but it's not really. And I think that the Finn narrative or the Finn. Um, Finn um, subplot is a huge part of that. Who would have thought that Steve Finn would end up being one of the principal characters of a film about this hero? Because he, he's only there for a little bit, really, and yet the in terms of his prominent part of his career, uh, and and yet it's him in the toilet on Christmas Day locking himself away. It's him having the piss taken out of him by Graham Swan seemingly throughout that tour, um, it, which ends up being really important. He's representative of how things go wrong and how people fall apart and how people aren't supported by that system because he, you know, he bowls at Trent Bridge in 2013 like the wind um, and then he's shot by the end of that year, basically. Yeah, with Edgebaston, that, that, that third test uh, at Edgebaston. Yeah, Edgebaston, yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. Completely, and I think that's certainly, from my perspective, the stuff that's interesting. I mean, you'll hear from Felix, I'm sure, but, like, I was pretty bored with cricket by that stage. I'd been around <laughs> it for so long, like, you know, like I was jaded, but what I wasn't jaded by was the human stories that weren't told, and like, that, to me, is why Bresnan, mm. Finn, Monty, to degree, and I, and I think that speaks, shine through. Yeah, and that speaks outside of cricket as well, because I think um, I've recognised that as well, that idea that when you're trying to achieve something, Something, but if if you're feeling a bit rubbish, you don't want to say, "Oh, I'm not feeling right," actually, because someone might just take that job away from you and just deem you that you can't do it. Do you know what I mean? Because your head's not right, and you can feel that um, paranoia in all of them. But if they were just to say, "Do you know what? I just feel a bit shot today." That's it. You're done. Yeah. And I think we all have that a little bit in any form of work where you're just going to get cut. You know what I mean? Well, there kind of are some parallels, really. I mean, the way yeah. you wrote, Felix, about this when you finished your Maccabees career, when you wrote about the, 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 the trauma of cricketers finishing in their early 30s, when at the same time you were finishing the band. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I sort of felt that when watching the film and listening to some of the music, which was so clearly influenced by, you know, you. You could hear you, could hear you in, the, in, in, the, in the show. But um, 
you got to the top of your 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 game and your field at a pretty young age, roughly the same time that these blokes were. Did you see some parallels there when you were helping contribute to this film how you could see how they were battling too? Yeah, I think I do feel it quite pertinently because it was exactly the same age. So yeah. the parallels are striking. And there was a, there's a moment, like me and Barney were talking about it the other day, there's a moment when um, Andrew Strauss at the end says, again, this might run, but we might as well just say it. He's saying that all the things that you thought were... Like hassles, you know, the pressure, the stress, that's what you miss because it makes you feel alive. And he says that as he's running out to play, and I thought, God, man, that is just so nail on the head of what it feels like to uh, to not suddenly be in that pressurised situation, which you thought was just... Uh, which you didn't realise how much that was keeping everything ticking, do you know what I mean? All that attention and focus, because at the other end of it, you just have to... You're dealt with yourself. Well, I think I think we see it as well, don't we, Jeff? In our yeah. line of work, when we have fallow periods, when the cricket's not on, and we go home for two or three months, and we're not we're not working every single day, that's probably when we we struggle the most. It's, it's, it's what, funny. What, what, what the, am I doing? No. The foot to the back yeah. of your throat. I guess I'll go to a, a shop and buy some bread. <laughs> well, it's, um, it's good that I just want to touch on what Freaks. Yeah, said, please. Because yeah. that was a moment I remember. Like we were trying to get this bit of music right for the last bit. Felix had pretty much cruised most of it. And it was just this last bit of music for that last kind of sequence where you're lifting things back up, but you're also trying to leave like with some emotional depth as well. And um, Felix was like sending me back and forth like these clips on the iPhone because I was somewhere else and we were going back and forth. And then he sent me this bit and just got the the rise at the right time. And then Strauss, he says that. It makes me emotional now, actually, because I remember it. Yeah. I, I remember me and Steve, yeah, Steve was editing it, and we dropped this really rough demo in, and it happened, and we both looked at each other like that. We were just like, oh, that's the moment. And for me, that just kind of it summed up the whole film in the space of the musical note and the tone of Strauss's voice and what he says and the fact that he's running out of lords and it all kind of yeah, came together. Yeah. It? No, no, but I mean, that was like the whole way through. We were trying to, um, it's the first score I've ever done, but we we're trying to make it as like as cinematic as possible. So it wasn't to do, and it's the same um, with the shots of Trot going underwater, um, walking into an empty field that eventually is like really urban. And there are loads of examples of it. of just trying to make this film that could exist in a world outside of cricket where it is actually cinema. Um, and obviously I've never done that before, but that was, I was, that's what I was trying to do with the music is make it feel like all my favourite films, like nothing to do with cricket at all, like have emotional investment with the characters, you know. Felix, how big did this project feel for you given you wrapped up the band you sort of accidentally at the same time started dabbling in this cricket world doing a bit of writing went on a, a tour or two <laughs> very good way of it um, <laughs> but it, it sort of it felt it felt like almost just accidental you went oh well this is happening so I guess I'll go yeah, along with right. it and, yeah, and, and, and coming to Australia accidentally um, <laughs> and dressing up in an Elmo suit to bowl accidentally <laughs> and then but, but then being able to do this sort of project which is you know combining those two things there aren't a lot of cricket music crossovers you know if we can disregard like the Wurzels or whatever um there's not a lot of cricket music crossovers and, and then there's this where you get to pull all of it together and yeah I couldn't really believe it to be honest Jeff I mean it couldn't be it couldn't have been more perfect and all the things that things that I was thinking about at the time I'll, I'll get upset no it's true though really, it ever, <laughs> really couldn't have been as yeah especially to be able to make music uh inverted commas properly do you know what I mean? So you're not just tagging on a little bit of music here and there. It's a whole other discipline, um, something that I felt was worthy and justified of attention and time. And, yeah. 
I'll try not to go scene by scene through everything as much as I want to because I love the movie. But um, uh, the music to the Jimmy Monty partnership, so quite early in oh, the film. Yeah. I mean, I just, I mean, it's bang in my hitting zone in terms of the music as well. But um, how do you, I mean, we all know how that afternoon played out. We've all seen it a million times on YouTube yeah. and whatever else. But what was your creative process behind you two working together on what that would look like and then ultimately what it would sound like as well? Very good question. So that that I love doing that because when Monty walks out to bat, it was um, me and Barney had gone back and forth about how it was going to feel a little bit spaghetti western, like Monty going out, and it's slightly comic, you know, like these two sort of anti gladiators have suddenly got a save the day type thing, um, and then after that minute of that happening, we, you know, it's that element of tension and. Um, so, well, you're with them, aren't you? As a viewer, you are with these two guys. Yeah, and when I've watched it a couple of times back in the screening, actually, you do feel your heart like beating quicker and quicker and quicker as they're trying to... And that's one thing I was we were trying to punctuate, really, is uh, that tension in cricket that non-cricket lovers sometimes don't quite get. We're trying to make that as theatrical and dramatic and cinematic as possible. And I love in that scene, just right at the end, it's built, 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 built. And then there's Jimmy's face in... A relief and the guitar just goes slang. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably yeah. it's probably the bit actually bit of music that remained from our original discussions where yeah. we were gonna like Felix was saying, Oh, we're gonna send up people and it's gonna be that kind of thing. Um and that's probably the one element that that still remains. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, yeah. It still works. Yeah, yeah. yeah one of the main characters arguably the main character in the whole film is Jonathan Trott for, for reasons that again don't really mean have a lot to do with cricket to do with mental health um, you don't bring him in until 20 minutes into the film in the same way you don't bring KP in until half an hour into the film but they end up being so dominant uh, through the middle stages um, what a complicated guy Jonathan Trott uh, how incredible he was willing to give you um, access to him now um, you know in the field um, in the pool there's sort of images that you've had in the trailer and people can see before they go and watch it in full and I hope they go and see this film in full but um, what was your relationship like with Jonathan Trott as a player did you have that kind of bond with him then which meant you knew he'd be this open as a subject later it's a really good question because actually I didn't know Trotty that well before this process okay. um, I knew him a, a bit obviously but He'd never been somebody that I'd kind of like hung out with much or anything like that. So it was actually quite quite interesting. I didn't expect, I knew that I wanted his story and always knew that I felt that his story kind of reflected the team. And I always felt also that the way it ended for him, I know he came back and played again, but that the kind of very impactive moment in Brisbane, A, was shocking. Um, and I also wanted to kind of redress how it had been re- afterwards because I don't think anyone really ever understood the kind of maybe state he was in and I wanted to get an audience to kind of be as disorientated or kind of upset as he was before he goes out rather than all the stuff that's after it Mm. so I always knew that that was going to be quite key and I didn't expect his level of commitment to it I guess that shows what kind of player he was as well because he just committed to it um, and trusted me which I can't ever like kind of repay him for really and it's funny because the field the field thing I said uh, oh, we're going to go to this field and oh, he's like great so we met there and um, he was like oh, where's the cricket field and I was like oh, it's an actual field <laughs> he still takes guard and he, he, was, he still he still takes yeah, guard I couldn't believe without, it without I never told him to take guard <laughs> no 
I just said, go out into the middle as if you're going to face a ball. That was all I said. Well, so he was, he was hopped over the barbed wire. Just yeah. And I was like, keep walking, Trotty, keep walking. <laughs> he kept going. So he did all this scratching of his guard without any prompting. He just did it. Um, and so, yeah, so like I feel, I hope, I think he does. Obviously, I've spoken to him since and his wife, actually. And they've been really, like, the messages they've sent me have been amazing. But like... I hope people see, yeah, what a great player he was, but also a courageous player, and also that they will think he's done something important in this film because I really feel he has. What's one thing they always say about Jonathan Trott is he was very good in the field. <laughs> Again, only a judge Jeff Lemon would make. When you when you were shooting the underwater scenes where he's you know, it's a kind of symbolic dark, dark tank, lots of bubbles and so on, you know, were you drawing inspiration from Beyonce's lemonade in which <laughs> she also is submerged in water and Um know. It's good it's a good question. She wasn't at the forefront of my mind on that occasion. But, um, it, there is a natural sort of bond, though, between Trot, Trot Beyonce. and Beyonce. So there's a Venn diagram overlap somewhere. Know, an epic duet, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be unbelievable. Um, I was just trying to get, you know, like, you know, on a serious note, I was just trying to get people to kind of feel something that he might have been feeling, really. I don't know. I don't so know if it works. But... He, he, he talks about being in tears and stuff. Yeah. And it's amazing that their footage does exist that when he is getting bombarded by Johnson and stuff, where it cut, zooms in on his face when he's batting when you're thinking he really shouldn't be there. And yeah. he actually is you can see crying him or he's right yeah. on the edge yeah. of tears there. Mm. It's, which, it's, yeah, it's shocking, really. Yeah. And I think, you know, just without obviously ruining everything, but before he does go out, every time I watched that in the edit, every time I was like, don't, don't go, go out there, try to. Yeah. 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 Every time, yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny that you think that in the film you, you, you explore that so nicely, yet... When they win in Sydney in 2010-11, so January 2011, he's the one dancing around with his shirt off. Like, it's a reminder that people that suffer from depression don't suffer from it in a vacuum. Like, you can have periods where you you you, you don't have that emotional response. Yeah. And 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 like, you I found it, it instructive the- that it was Kevin Peterson and Jonathan Trott who you chose to highlight in that scene. Two of the guys who, I mean, again, they're principal characters, but they're kind of seen as outsiders. Yeah. Yet at their time of triumph, they are very much in a sanctum. Totally. And I think that was the other thing I wanted to redress. It was like, I mean, if you'd read stuff from after that team had kind of fallen apart, it was like, oh, it was the worst time of anyone's ever had. No one celebrated a win. Mm. No one smiled. Like, no one danced. Of course, it's absolute nonsense. It was an incredible times as a fan and also looking at them as players. Um, and it, And you're absolutely right. I hope that's what it does show. It's like mental health issues and depression all those kind of things whatever it might be that an individual individual suffering from like they're not they don't just kind of land on your doorstep one day you know they're kind of they're built up over time i think for a lot of people but also it's that doesn't define you either as a person mm-hmm. it's not like right oh that's that person and that's what they struggle with and that's them they that's, exist you know. they exist within the same day they, Absolutely. they come and go and, and arrive and disappear and it's it's not deliberate but this has been a real theme that we seem to keep picking up on final word podcasts where every, almost every cricketer we interview the, we start coming to that kind of question because there are so many cricketers who have these issues and i suppose it's probably across any elite sports because there's this it's so much about the perceived success or failure of the the person the individual this human being is a failure because they didn't win a thing or they're a success because they did and then being defined by that rather than being able to be who they actually are you know as as a human being two other characters um who uh, contrast but i was curious about their relationship at the time swan peterson so i note that swan calls him kev 
not KP, not you know the Kev, which suggests that they had a familiarity where you know I don't know this is one small small part when, when watching it back. But um, what were they like together when you were running around with the camcorder in ten eleven and you know things were great for England cricket? Were they getting on? Uh, or, or like, what's your recollection of, of the way those two interacted then? I think there's always been friction between them because they're both big characters, sure. definitely. Mm. Um, and I think they rubbed each other up the wrong way, definitely. But when a team's successful, <laughs> to say the least, probably. But when a team is when a team's successful, I think you've all got that shared goal. You're all trying to get to the same thing. So it kind of you you take people, you'd suffer whatever might irritate you about them, and you and you kind of join forces, as it were, to try and achieve this. And there's a really <laughs> amazing shot at the end of... Self-hating Voltron. <laughs> yeah. but there's this amazing shot at the end of that 20... It's actually near the end of the film, but at the 2011 Ashes, and yep. there's a massive hug between, like, Swan and Peterson yeah. in the middle. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I think that says a lot, because it's like... They were just two characters that just rubbed each other up the wrong way, essentially. And so, like when you see Shane Warne and Steve Waugh hugging during the, two th- in the 1999 World Cup, Shane Watson just, they, and they Michael just, Clark. Well, well, in the case of Warne and Waugh, they'd just fallen out. This 20 years later, we're still hearing about it, right? But they're all over each other in the 99 World Cup. That's final. what sport can do, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that is that's that sport at its very best is like the World Cup final of the day, be hugging people you've never met before, all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. What it does is it just strips away all the kind of baggage that you carry at its very best and it's just like your core emotion erupting and I think that could be bad but it could also be absolutely amazing and I think that, that's probably what happened then yeah, Peterson the way you intro it through your narrator um, <laughs> we have to talk about Kevin which is a nice way of doing it as do we uh, the the way in which he kind of initially talks about batting like you know get out good ball next question you know like he it, it's it's classic KP but I'm more interested in how, how did you get him in front of a camera because I know a lot of people have tried and he's did the Channel 4 doco recently, so it's not as though it's without precedent, but still, he doesn't do a lot of talking about this era. How did you pull it off, and how has he been uh, subsequent to the film's release? Well, I think there was a lot, like, it took... Kevin came on board quite late. Like, we were a long way through the edit process, which didn't make, obviously, life very easy. Um, But worth it, obviously. But obviously worth it, um, without doubt. I think there was a lot Trot still friendly with him, so Trot was messaging him, I think twice a day for six months Gosh. something like that so uh, in the end anything just to stop trotty texting him probably yeah really you're an idiot if you don't do this like blah, 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 blah. you know all that kind of stuff so um and i think also Persistence is a jonathan Trot yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's stubborn yeah. um i think also though and i understand completely he was probably fearful of being like just kind of edited in a way where he was just the full guy for everything you know and I I get that totally so I think there was probably quite a worry there from him Um, but thankfully in the end he relented to Trotty's messages and also I think you know Andrew Strauss probably played a role in it as well because they've certainly kind of mended their relationship in the last few months so I think that played a part Um, what was the second part? Uh, well, I think it was. How did you get? How did how, you get? How, how has he, he responded since? Like, has he been engaged in the post? Not heard a word since, okay. which doesn't surprise me in the slightest. I don't, I don't um, think it's. I don't think he could watch it and say it's been unfair. Like, I, I think, think he's think been so. reasonably self-reflective yeah, in recent times. I, I, yeah, I don't think so. I think. Oh, but one of my biggest things was actually like to make everyone, <laughs> everyone feel that actually they're fairly represented, um, and I think we've done that. 
to be honest. And, and, and that's he, not easy, actually. To be fair as well, he says a few things. He says, like, the workload's too much. When you look back on it, it's like, well, he was right yeah, about he that, was, yeah, about the yeah. workload. And also about um, Finn being overworked mm. and those kind of things. And actually, once you get rid of all the baggage of what of what's going on with all these people, he actually makes a few points which are really yeah. relevant. Yeah. And if you look at the... Uh, England side now if they were modelled on any batsman from that team it's Kevin isn't it so I think the film tries to be really fair with all that mm. stuff well yeah he's the one who points out that you know they didn't care about Stephen Finn being okay they cared about him hitting the stumps and yeah which, that, was, that was about it yeah which is the truth in that I think I was interested in um, the portrayal of Australians in the film they, they very much come across as the barbarians at the gates you know they're, they're, um, it's, it's, I was it's like this coming. Here, here's, here's angry grimacing Peter Siddle and here's someone snarling at someone and here's is that the relationship of an English cricket follower to Australia are they just the sort of the terrifying team that's waiting in the dark just beyond the circle of the campfire light to tear you to pieces when I was growing up Yes. What you guys probably well, you might be starting to understand it, but what you won't understand is that through our youth, um, and Felix's as well, like if we won a session against yeah. the Aussies, it was cause yeah, for yeah. national <laughs> celebration. Is that why they brought like, in the phase thing in the World yeah. Cup? They're like, oh, they won phase three. Like, and also, it wasn't, there was never, there was never sentiment, there was never like, you would beat us and beat us and beat us in the ground and tell us how much better than you were than us and you'd beat us more and more and more and more so I think from that definitely and that also this era like Anderson Swan they all grew up with that as well yeah. um, so that's definitely I think there's an element of that coming into play um, but also like I hope it's taken in the right way but it's also kind of been a fun you know like kind of there is a rivalry between England and Australia and I think that's actually what part makes the Ashes series so great mm. and if everyone starts being nice to each other it's going to get super dull like I like that I, I as a sports fan I want to see a bit of that I mean, you know? Peter Siddle especially there's a lot of barking at Peter Siddle yeah. when, and also, like quite often it's actually translated what he's saying <laughs> yeah. you know, oh my god that's so hard he's, yeah. he's pretty um, on the field apparently uh, off the field he's very lovely. Pete's player, one apparently. of the nicest blokes yeah. I've met in your life. He doesn't look. And that's not even like a, that's not a sort of a throwaway <laughs> comment because you depicted him that way. It's more that he obviously has the ability to shift gears, and I think he's probably changed quite a lot in the last nine years too yeah. since those yeah. quotes you used from from that, from that time. But I, I quite like that too, Jeff. That the, the way in which you, you frame up ten eleven, you've got the Bavarian forest torture camp yeah <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it I'm watching it thinking imagine they try to put me anyway imagine you'll put imagine you Jeff were put into that situation you would have you would have opted out literally <laughs> um, but so after all that I would have dug know, a hole pulled a tarpaulin over it yeah. so Flower <laughs> give me back you know, my Herobi <laughs> so even Andy Flower conceding you might have gone too far quite like but you now we jumped to Australia you know we all know what happens at Brisbane and Adelaide that's a, that's a big concession though. I, I, I think I'll concede when I took the guys into a forest in Germany and abandoned them <laughs> in the yes, dark Yes. I might have taken it too far. <laughs> yeah. well, and then we have the, 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 yeah, the Brisbane and Adelaide success, which, um, which uh, you know, is done in kind of one. Then we get to Melbourne, and we've already discussed Stephen Finn getting dropped in Melbourne, but I think that's one of the most affecting scenes in the whole movie, really, isn't it? It's the, it's the perfect day. It's the all-out 98. Um, the way that kind of wall of sound that you created, Felix, with the synth involved as well there at one point. Um, but the Jimmy Anderson part of the story there is probably the most interesting part of the scene. Mm. You're close friends with Jimmy Felix. Um, he says some quite vulnerable things in that little passage where he's not on camera. It's kind of like upsots where he, it's in that package of him beating the edge several times and then proceeding to run through Australia in that first session. Yeah. Um, 
is that the sort of Jimmy you, you know, having had more to do with him as a mate, that he has got a, a far more um, vulnerable side than perhaps we're used to seeing as fans of the game and covering the game when he's so grizzled and so hard and, and, and so, you know, grumpy, I think is the word you use in the, in, in the documentary as well. Yeah, well, I think, because I mean, I've been doing this show with Jimmy for a few years, I've, I know him quite well now. And of course, like all your mates, he just isn't a caricature person that is presented to you, you know, like, like anyone you know. So, yep. of course, there's loads of sides to Jimmy. But that is a small revelation, which I, he's never told me or something, that he says that he was um, an easy target for bullies. I, I, I found that fascinating. Yeah. I, I've never um, heard him say anything like that. So that is a really brief, unguarded moment. And that, what's interesting about Jimmy in this film is that the rest of them are a stage of reflection from their career because they've retired and they can look back on it. I think Jimmy's the only guy still playing for England. Broad. And Broad, sorry, yeah, yeah, from both of them. So that, um, so obviously there isn't a willingness there because he's still in the midst of it to kind of unpack it in the same way. So I thought that was like very, um, yeah, I thought it was a very, really evocative moment. He just briefly says, yeah, it was easy to argue for. And he, and he was never better, really, than that morning in that Ashes series, really ever in Australia, perhaps maybe that session at Adelaide mm. in 17, 18, after dark with the pink ball. But that morning when he was hooping it around corners, I've got such strong memories of that day. And one of them is that he gets a wicket to take England to lunch. And I remember writing at the time and saying that it looked as though he was going to jump into jump into the Barmy Army like Pat Cash after winning Wimbledon. Like, the way that he responded to that, I mean, there's something about the euphoria of that day, the way Strauss described, um, you know, the, the people filing out of the MCG. I was one of those, by the way. I, I, was, I was in the pub by tea time, I'm sure. Um, and, and again, that sort of, you know, before you go down, you have to go to the very, very top, and it felt like you, you built that to the boil beautifully. Well, thanks, mate. I... I, I... It's hard, it, I can understand now for cricket fans, it is hard to appreciate what a moment that day was. I mean, England fans went out to Australia time after time after time and were begging for scraps, basically, mm, you know, yeah. like anything they could get hold of to cheer. Andy Caddick in Sydney in, yeah, in like, yeah, 03, yeah. you know, I'll get a consolation win at the end of a 4 nil thrashing. Exactly, yeah. like literally begging for scraps. So to be in a situation to not only perform like that on the you know the biggest test match in the world but also in a series where it actually meant something you know it was alive and it and it signaled a shift for me so um yeah it was a special, special also time. i think that the cool thing is which an undercurrent of, of that moment though is that um there's a sadness in it because in that moment in the pinnacle it's the end of the process it's the end of what you're trying to achieve and that that feeling of like what now that's what I think. That's what also what we're trying to do with the music occasionally is that even though it's triumphant, it's also like can be very melancholic as well. And that was that feeling of when they were there, there almost is that, well, that's the end of yeah. us now, I guess. It's every, it's every kid who flogs themselves to get a perfect score at the end of high school and then realises there was no point. You know. was, it, was it the same with you? I mean, we, we kind of touched on this before, Felix. Yeah. But I mean, that was a vulnerable moment. Definitely. Yeah. Oh no, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. I was hydro engineering is my specialty in year twelve. Well, we got, you kind of relate. I mean, we, we touched on the Maccabees before, but when, I mean, when you had such success with number one albums in your early twenties, sure. did you feel that kind of oh well, fuck? What's what's next now? When I've done that thing, is that something you can relate to as well? Yeah, there is a sadness to it because, like we we're saying at the start, you realise oh but I haven't changed. I'm still me. There's not, no magic doors have opened. It doesn't change anything about your life. There is that idea that you kind of feel like you're going to walk through some door. Um, where, do you know what I mean? You're going to be hanging out with like, 
Oasis and Pole from Blur for like, do you know what I mean? And everyone's having a great time and all your favourite sporting heroes yeah. and everybody's going to be like happy ever after and it just doesn't, it just doesn't exist. <laughs> you just walk into Shane Warne's mural and you're like, oh, JFK's here, Marilyn Monroe. I mean, there is that small thing in your head where you do think your life will be different. It's probably the same yeah. as you, but I'm finishing this film. It's like, whoa, whoa. That's that then, is yeah. it? I couldn't even get a ticket to Lords. But like but that's the really good that's the really interesting point and it comes back round to what you were saying about, okay, well what is it really about then? What why do you do it? And it's the people you do it with, I think. It's like the kind mm. of that collective sense of joy and celebration and all those kind of things, but doing it in the way that actually brings you joy in the process, not at the end of it. Yeah. When you get to the end of it, I don't think there's anything there, like you said. And, and what I think is remarkable and, and what has happened, I guess, a lot of times in my life and, and yours as well is how quickly uh, something like that can vanish and how sad it is. You know, I was thinking about it with Mark Wood talking about hopping in the car to drive home wearing his World Cup winner's medal. And I was thinking, like, well, what are you going home for? Like, what, right now? Like, this soon? And, and you think, well, this, you know, that group, that England team who won on Sunday, are they ever, they might never all be in the same room again. You know, it's possible. They, they might be. There might be some reunion, but there's usually someone missing somewhere for some reason. And you can have these these wonderful moments, these these incredible friendships, these incredible sort of group moments, and then you get scattered, you go on, washed on down the river of life, and you all get washed apart, and you'll never come back together again in the same way. Those things can't they can't be returned to, and there's kind of an agonising nostalgic pain to that at times of, of how sweet those moments are but how easily they're lost. Definitely, and I think that's why all the guys have responded so well to it because they've suddenly got this thing now where, yeah, it's got painful stuff in it as well, but it's also those moments when they were all together, they can kind of look back and be like, oh, that was still special. I think that's the general feeling of the film, really. Yeah, and then the cost, the payoff for, or you know, the 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 the, the hangover is kind of the summer of twenty twelve, really, isn't it? They they lose the number one mantle to South Africa. Um, there's KP Gate, which um, is going on up at Headingley, then makes the hundred, which I think um, you know, in many respects, that's the scene that's been talked about most in the film, really, the drumming, um, which accompanies the the, the Peterson hundred, which is just quite astonishing. Um, so. To, bo- to both of you, really, but to start with you, Barney, um, how hard was it telling that story? Because obviously everyone wants to talk about the good bit, right? How hard was it getting them to open up about how it all fell apart, especially at Headingley, especially with Peterson, and then from Felix's perspective, um, putting to music the, the arguably, well, I mean, in the top handful of hundreds ever played in this country? Yeah, it's, it's a good point. I mean, I, uh, what I was really wary about was just regurgitating everything that had already been done. All the books and all that, right? Yeah, he said that, she said that, he's this, she's that. Obviously, no women in that team, but nevertheless. Like, um, I didn't want that to be the story. I didn't want a few, like, text messages or whatever it might be and bickering to become this, the takeaway that everyone comes out and they're all like, oh, it's the same thing all over again. But I had to kind of outline what occurred so we just just i just decided as filmmaker i was just gonna go right we're gonna just do the factual element and i want to move on from it pretty quickly because what really interested me is what was going on in people's heads and how strauss was feeling about to come to the end peterson obviously feeling isolated everyone else getting frazzled like obvious tension all that kind of thing those are the bits that i wanted to push it towards because i knew that it was getting towards the panasophin trot stuff so uh, that probably maybe leave some cricket fans unsatisfied but to make it a story that transcended the sport it couldn't be about a couple of text messages i guess 
Yeah, um, well, that pizza knock is like, that's the ultimate, well, screw you lot, knock, isn't it, of like all time. And I, I, I took like a bit of uh, sadistic pleasure in doing it because Sam, the drummer in the Maccabees, did the drumming on this um, score and he has actively, for the last 10 years, tried to, whenever I had cricket on in a room, be in the other room at all times like he was like really didn't want anything to do with cricket so just to be like this is your life now mate you're drumming to Kevin Peterson's innings <laughs> um, was just, I took a lot of joy out of that um, and he we just sort of set him up and we knew that the scene was about two and a half minutes long and that's just Sam just having one just totally like freestyle take at yeah. knock and then from that point on we were thinking like it's like a scene out of the jungle book or something like he's swinging yeah. from the trees and all that kind of thing and you've got the violin going yeah. and like all those sort of um trumpets doing those weird things and, and stuff like that so he kind of pieced it together um blow by blow as kp's going through his knot which i've really loved doing it, and it, it worked like the, sam's total freestyle drum thing without reference to the kp's knock it would like strain it was freakish how much they matched with each other just naturally and so you didn't give Sam a highlights package or a three minute you know look at the innings to kind of feel even though he hasn't got the cricket background but just to kind of sense uh, what he was looking at or was that just coincidental I did show it to him but it literally means nothing to him (laughs) (laughs) that's how little he cares or knows about cricket but I could have shown him anything he went I just was just like drum yeah. And it just was one of those magic things where it worked. Oh, stunning. stunning. There, there are a couple of bits in, in that film where I feel like um, one of the great things about it is it's not doing too much of the cricket, you know, and that's, that's something that you could get bogged down in and, you know, who made what and what happened there. But it's like giving an impressionistic feel of the cricket and there are a couple of moments, one being that 100, um, one being that the sense of intimidation of coming out onto the MCG, which is, you know, I've been to that ground hundreds of times, mm, but yeah. had never really thought about it in terms of how it would feel as a foreign team walking so, out yeah. into the middle of that. We might uh, take it for granted, I reckon, yeah. Jeff, because, I mean, you've written a lovely piece about um, going to Jollymont Station, which was your line to the MCG. Yeah. Mine was Richmond Station, so I had the opposite way in. But for you and I growing up, going to the MCG is just so normal. I've watched Hawthorne play hundreds of games there. I've watched Victoria and Australia play there every year of my life, literally. But for you guys coming out to the MCG, you were there with me last year, Felix. Yes. You mean, and and, and yeah, the, the feeling of walking into that joint, 100,000 people. Imagine doing it on Boxing Day in a test match, which will determine the fate of your cricketing life. It's, it's interesting to say it because when I was out there for the Ashes yeah. this uh, winter, I felt on approach to that place, like I could feel my throat like closing up. <laughs> and it's like it's like very restrictive feeling, actually. Like it's way, way, way bigger than you. And you don't know if you're going to be able to have like summon the power of even speech, like a sentence and working so like that that's so true that even just from just from going to watch you have that feeling so can you matter like matt pryor talks brilliantly about how it's like being gladiators and the dust is coming down from the ceiling and the aircon disappears as you walk out and see the light do you know what i mean because they're coming yeah. in from underground which is yeah that's that's very cinematic in itself isn't how it? do you get those shots barney i was wondering that afterwards the vca or the, sorry the, the cricket victoria change rooms which are the australia change rooms and did you go back out and do a whole other round of shooting or was that just yeah like- we went out so <laughs> <laughs> budgetary restrictions we went out for two days to Australia okay. so we flew in and we in those two days we did Sydney Melbourne and interviewed David Saker in Brisbane and then got out um, and that's all like there's loads of that in the film because um, I knew that I, you can't there's no, you've got to be there you've got to go there you've got to try and give people a, a cinematic scale of certainly the MCG nothing prepares for you how big it is it does, uh, it's, I've never seen a stadium like it ever, 
ever and it is like it, it has to be a throwback to Rome and all that kind of thing if you are a gladiator or whatever it is and you're going into it's the only stadium surely in the entire world that and, has that feeling and the film does that because when uh, Tim Bresnan says he got picked and 96,000 people turned up you can hear when I've gone to both the screenings everyone kind of go oh, yeah. like the gasp do you know yeah. what I mean at, at the thought of that because it's really and it's unusual for English cricket I mean we've got Lords a World Cup final you know biggest game in the world 26,000 people yeah. 26,000 yeah. people imagine 99,000 people and you know 80,000 of them hate you and, 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 <laughs> and then, the rest and then you're talking about the gladiatorial nature and the other the third thing that I thought you captured really well was the menace of Mitchell Johnson in that 13-14 Ashes that was the first series in Australia that I'd covered you know being able to watch from press boxes right behind the bowler's arm and have that up front feel and I remember being I remember flinching in Adelaide when he was bowling when he uh, had a couple of those ones that went through and hit the stumps and I would flinch as the ball came down because it was so quick he was it was terrifying in a way that no cricket that I've seen has been terrifying and but to be able to you you gave it even a slightly new twist on that in the um in the way it the sort of siege feeling of that England team at the time well I hope that comes across I mean for me the Mitchell Johnson thing was really interesting and if there was more time and all that kind of stuff I'd like to actually had a bit of a look at who he was in 2009 when England were on top and he was really struggling to then what he became in 2013 when he absolutely destroyed England. I've, I saw a lot of cricket during that period. I watched it. Obviously, I haven't faced that kind of pace. That series, that 2013 series, I absolutely agree. You would flinch. Like, I genuinely felt I've never seen, like, test batsmen pretty much incapable of playing yeah. fast Amazing. bowling like I've never seen anything like it terrifying so um, you know I tried to get that it's such across. a good story isn't it and, and, and in the Bavaria camp you, it's very brief but you see they're um, they've been asked to throw rocks at um, signs at the other side of thing and they've got Mitchell Johnson's face on them yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's so poetic but uh, uh, two series later like he was yeah. throwing rocks at there. Yeah, it's, a great, it's a great story. I mean, yeah. it, it really is. So, And there's that one bit that it's the best shot in the whole thing for me, which is, I don't know if you're filming this from the boundary line because you've, it's just the one shot. It's where Johnson having a go at, at Anderson while, he's, while Johnson's batting and he says... All time. And he yeah, says, no, what are you talking shit for? You're not taking wickets. And Anderson runs in and swings one and takes out the stumps and just turns around and looks at him. Um, and, and, it, and it's all one shot. Was it, were you so filming I, that? I'd love to claim credit for that, but no, I think that was on one of the one of the kind of TV cameras and footage right. that they, you know, you know, they have all the different anggles yep. and it was just a bit of footage. But I it's unbroken. It, it, it doesn't, it doesn't just, cut. It's on him. Yeah. It's on Anderson walking it's back. So he good, turns around, it? he comes in and it's like, oh my God. Just... In both um, screenings this week I went to, the whole cinema um, clapped. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's got about 20 million YouTube views yeah. out of that video as it's well. well. Over it's the, well you know, seen. People just I love quite, it. I was quite surprised though, actually, because at both the screenings, people have gone, oh, that bit is amazing. But I'd never seen that before. So. Oh, really? Interesting. Uh, Barney, I think the only thing the only thing left to ask you is that how do people get a chance to watch your wonderful film? Tell us where they can buy it, rent it, see it, whatever it, it is. That people, how how they are consuming it? Tell them now because you know, both in Australia, of course, they can get it uh, through the, the digital link and so forth, and in England in, in cinemas and so forth. So the situation definitely in the UK, it's out on DVD, loads yep. of like shops and stockists, you know, H and B, all that kind of stuff, um, and then downloads from iTunes, um, Sky Store, normal things. There's also cinema screening still going on. There's been there's more being added. So if you go to the website, uh, theedgefilm.com, there's always screenings now at the moment being added, and it's, if you can see it on a big screen, 
it's well worth it. Internationally, there's news to follow. So if you're an Aussie fan, um, it will be available, but I don't think it is yet. But you'll probably hate me after it. So No, no, that's fine. <laughs> we, we can send you a dodgy link to it or something like that. Uh, and, uh, and Felix, um, uh, in, in terms of what you're doing at the moment, um, your, your tail end this podcast seems to go from strength to strength. It, it feels like everyone in the cricketing world is listening to that right now. Oh, does it? Yeah, we're sort of rolling. It's become, it's, it's got its own world of its own now, tail enders, which again is totally accidental but that's going to carry on through the ashes but Jimmy's obviously going to be playing a lot so it might be less frequent but there'll be plenty of stuff across the ashes for sure. Mm-hmm. Barney Jeff- I, I'm looking forward to when you make the film of our lives so just follow me and Adam around for seven years <laughs> get a lot of archival footage edit it together it's going to be a it's going to be a tale some highs some lows the build-up to perfection the, the eventual fall and the, the, the tale of human tragedy and redemption. What needs to happen when you guys like go your separate ways amongst yeah, the- angst and uh, <laughs> So when when that happens, give us a shout. We'll, we'll, we'll get ready. Right. Theedgefilm.com. It's called The Edge. Barney Douglas, Felix White, thank you both so very much for joining the final word. Thank Cheers. you very much. Cheers. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Brilliant. It's got plenty about me, as usual. So I uh, hope you enjoy it. As the shadows lengthen here in North London, uh, with the interview now finished and enjoyed, hopefully by all, let's let's wrap up the show, Jeff. It's been fun. I had a great time talking to Barney and Felix. They were, they were, they were excellent guests, plugging a brilliant movie. And as I said on the on the uh, on on the tape, then I hope everyone gets a chance to, to watch it because it's about a lot more than than bat and ball. Yeah, well, you can show it to your non cricket loving friends, exactly. and they'll still get something out of it. I think it's it's about people it's about the frailty of humans and and really isn't that what all art is about in one way or another it's it's just about humanity and this is the right time to bring new people into the game of course we saw the viewing figures for the world cup final on channel yeah. 4 terrestrial television seven million people watched that game of cricket the amount of stuff that i've had sent to me on twitter um from people who haven't engaged with the game until last weekend in this country is phenomenal it feels like we're on a nice little upward swing at the moment um and it's not about again it's not about australia or england or whatever it's about people who love this sport and love this game and want to see it grow and they want to see it grow in this country because a strong England um, means a strong global game mm. and, and as it is the same for the West Indies and Pakistan and other parts of the game that have other parts of the world rather that have had troubles um, in recent years for various reasons this is the this is the time to back it in after a World Cup and of course on the cusp of an ashes which we'll be covering um, extensively through the Daily Show, Jeff. We just mm. finished five, four episodes of the Ashes Daily down in Taunton, and they will continue throughout the course of the Men's Ashes too. Yes, um, maybe even the day before. I reckon we we might be doing we some will. of those as well. Um, they'll be in your feed. You you won't be able to get away from us. Someone sent us a screenshot of their phone, um, which was just like literally nothing but final word podcasts, <laughs> and they're like, "Why are you doing this to me? Why have you taken over my life?" I'm sorry, we have to podcast every day. Everyone's got the in rules. their iTunes one podcast, which comes up by default when a podcast ends. I've kind of realised this is a it's, right. a it's a design flaw of the iTunes app on on the on the iPhone. For me, it's it's like a ridiculous self-help podcast I subscribed to several years ago and always meant to unsubscribe from um, for someone got in touch with us I can't remember who it was and said that we are that for them every time uh, that they're the podcast they're listening to comes to a close one of ours bobs up <laughs> Earth so, Boy pops up I'm so sorry about that no but hey, that's alright that's the way it goes it's a good tune 
This has been The Final Word. I'm Adam Collins. He's Jeff Lemon. Thank you so much for your company. Thanks, as always, to AV Jennings for making this possible. Thank you to Bad Producer Productions. We've got DC and Jay on the tools for us each time with this show, and it's simply not possible without them. And thanks for everyone for your kind comments around the World Cup final and around what we've been doing around The Daily Show. It's been it's been a wonderful experience. Yeah, that, that part particularly of, um, of just how much everybody came along with us for the journey which was what we were hoping would happen but it, it didn't really prepare me for the reality of it happening which has been uh, it's it's just been such a, a gratifying thing to to be able to bring a bit of happiness into people's lives hope you enjoyed the show we'll talk to you again soon next time so you know what i meant i had to go about it write it out and find it myself Jeff, 1932 was the summer of Bodyline, and the Australians needed courage to face Harold Larwood. And we're still talking about it 80-whatever <laughs> years later. We're not mad. We're really not mad. We've never been mad. Don't know what it's like to be mad. No, don't have a chip on our shoulder on the bed at all. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, that same year, another young Australian showed courage by mortgaging his home during the Great Depression to start a property company, which must have been quite the ballsy move. Um, yeah, I mean, initially I was like, uh, meh about that line. And then I thought, actually, that is kind of terrifying. Um, <laughs> probably worse than playing cricket. <laughs> Albert Victor Jennings was his name. He wanted to provide affordable and quality housing in areas where people actually wanted to live. AV Jennings, the company that bears his name, is still doing that today. It's very much a name of the times, isn't it? You wouldn't, you wouldn't meet a lot of Albert Victors kicking around. Actually, you might. Maybe it, maybe it's like due for a hipster resurgence and... There'll I was going to say, I reckon there's plenty of uh, there's plenty of young boys out there, well, maybe young girls for that matter, called Albert Victor. Uh, I, I know an I know a young Albie, so maybe these names are coming back into fashion. Av Jennings are certainly in fashion, and that's why they're one of the most trusted names in Australian housing. Oh, what a segue! <laughs> He's so smooth, <laughs> seamless. He's like butter. <laughs> so go to avjennings.com.au. Go there now and check them out for yourself. I mean, if you need a house, probably don't go there if you don't need a house. Like if you're but sweet for if houses. You do. No, if you're sweet. For for houses, you're probably good, but, but if you need one, have a look. <laughs>